This podcast contains adult language and content. If you have a story to share, send it to let's not meet stories at gmail.com. Enjoy the show. My name is Andrew Tate, and this is Season 9, Episode 4 of Let's Not Meet, a true horror podcast. Welcome to The Lost Stories, part 13, a series of Let's Not Meet where we remaster some of the creepiest stories from the early days of the podcast that weren't available online for quite some time. I think you'll really get a kick out of this collection of unsettling recordings from back in 2018. Enjoy the show. I was 21. Recently, I became a police officer and was also recently dumped, so my friend suggested Tinder. As a 21-year-old and a new cop, I had the I'm invincible and I can take on anyone mentality. I matched with a very good-looking, out-of-my-league female. We chatted and eventually set up a date to meet. She said that she had a great open field to look at the stars and hang out, and we could meet up at her house. So the night came. I was excited, and she seemed to be excited when I picked her up. She guided me to the field, and it looked nice. Open space, woods, deer, and other wildlife. In the field, I noticed really dim headlights in the distance. Then... The van started driving toward us and pulled up in front of us, almost close enough to block me from going forward. I told her to stay in the car and I'll go say hi. I grabbed my flashlight I had in the car and walked up. In the front driver's side of the van, there was a decently sized man. I asked him what was going on and if he could back his car up a little bit. He was very polite and said he was the owner of the property and said he didn't mean to scare us. He told me he's been having trouble with poachers on his property and just wanted to make sure we weren't going to be shooting at anything. I ensured him that we only came out to look at the stars and wildlife. He was perfectly okay with that and told me to have a nice date, then drove away. After that, the girl was texting nonstop. Around an hour later, I saw headlights coming towards us again, this time at a really fast pace. We hopped in the car, and I moved it to a more defensive position. The same man came close enough to almost hit my car. She hopped out of the car at that point and ran towards the guy. I immediately knew I was fucked. I got out and gave them commands to back up and get on the ground. Neither of them complied. Obviously, he then proceeded to charge me and knocked me to the ground. Luckily, I was able to get him on his back and get up. 
I saw my quote-unquote date grab a metal pipe from the van. She told me they had a gun and to give them my money and truck, and I won't get hurt. Of course, with my I'm invincible mentality, I said no. She started to cry and saying that they didn't want to hurt me. He then started to go back towards the car. At that point, I told him I was a cop, drew my concealed firearm, and to lay on the ground. After a moment of shock from all of us, they complied. I was able to call 911, tell them my name and badge number. I had the two at gunpoint and needed backup immediately. I gave our dispatcher the directions I could to this field while on the phone. They both fled. Again, stupid new young cop guy mentality. I chased them. I took off after the man who ran into the woods around the field. I chased him for maybe 30 seconds and heard three loud pops and saw muzzle flash. My I'm invincible mentality went right out the window. I ran like hell back to my car and peeled the hell out of there. I went back to the area I picked her up in, called dispatch again, and had officers come to that location. Of course, the first officer to pull up was my sergeant and my field training officer. The most used words out of their mouths were dumbass and stupid fucking rookie. I hopped in their car and went towards the field. Luckily, the van was still there. I was told to shut my mouth and only come out if they start getting shot at. They cleared the area and started looking in the van. They found meth right on the center console and searched the car. What scared me the most was when my field training officer and sergeant came back to the patrol car, let me out, and told me to come and look in the back of the van. Both of them were pale, looking horrified. I went to the back of the van, where there were several knives, duct tape, lighter fluid, and a decent amount of rifle ammunition, handcuffs, and what looked like dry blood. In the front passenger side, we found an AR-15-style rifle and two more handguns. We called for immediate backup and detectives. When they investigated the blood, it turned out it wasn't blood. The plates had been stolen, and the van was also reported stolen. I still get shit about the whole encounter, but luckily no one got hurt. I will never use online dating ever again. I'm 25 female and have been living in Japan for a few years now, and one thing I have quite often are stalker encounters. It seems that in my area, or anywhere else that isn't a big city now that I think about it, Japanese men can come to be quite obsessive with foreign women, especially fair-skinned, blonde-haired, blue-eyed foreign women, such as myself. 
I've dealt with quite a few situations where I was sure I would be kidnapped. One such encounter was back in 2013 when I was in my third year of university. The following was a very brief encounter, but a terrifying one nonetheless. I was studying abroad at a school in Saitama, making a lot of friends and having the time of my life. I joined the a cappella club and had a group that I sang with. Together there were five of us. They were all men, which made me uncomfortable at first, but we blended well together and they felt more comfortable singing English songs with me there to help with pronunciation and whatnot. One day after practice was finished, my group invited me to go shopping with them at a local supermarket to get things for a nabe party. For those of you who don't know, nabe is basically a hot pot. You get a bunch of veggies and some meat, then you put a big pot on a little portable gas burner and everyone gathers around and eats together. It's a huge part of Japanese culture and a great way to hang out with friends. I was so ecstatic that they invited me. I was usually left out of these kinds of things at first because I was an outsider, whereas they had known each other since their freshman year. Over the few months that we had been singing together, though, they'd grown to be like a family to me, each one like an overprotective big brother, especially a guy named Kosuke. He was tall and a bit on the heavy side, but he was extremely charismatic. Whenever he saw me fumbling around, nervous or confused, he'd quickly appear by my side and throw a heavy arm around my shoulder, practically knocking me over, while asking, What's the problem? Anyway, the Nabe party. We all went to our friend's house for the party and ended up drinking and talking until pretty late. When my phone in my pocket vibrated to tell me that I had a low battery, I saw the time and realized it was already 4 a.m. These guys were getting ready to nap until the train started back up, but I was only a 30-minute walk away from my share house. I announced that I was leaving and started packing up my stuff. Kosuke offered to walk me home, but I told him I was fine. The sun would be rising soon. Japan has an early sunrise, and it was not that far. The cold would kill me before the walk did, I joked. They reluctantly agreed and saw me off, demanding I call them if anything happened. I made it to the station safely, marking the halfway point home. I descended the stairs to see a single car parked outside with a man leaning up against it, staring straight at me. It wasn't anyone I knew. He was older than me in his mid-thirties, maybe early forties. His head turned, watching me as I walked down the stairs. Feeling uncomfortable with the unwanted attention, I rushed my pace a little, rubbing my hands together to fight the sudden chill that overcame me, though I was pretty sure it had nothing to do with the cold. I crossed to the other side of the street, avoiding him as best as I could. I avoided looking at him as well. I heard a car door slam and an engine start up. Headlights illuminated me, and he turned to drive alongside where I was walking. His window rolled down. Hey, he said in Japanese. Are you alone? I said nothing. Where are you going? Do you speak Japanese? I quickened my pace. You're pretty. Let's hang out. I began power walking. The sluggish tiredness from the party was quickly being replaced 
with adrenaline. He pulled ahead, and I thought he gave up, but his car stopped not far ahead, and he put it in park, getting out. He was standing about ten feet ahead of me. I stopped so that I wasn't walking any closer to him. Let's go home together, he said forcefully, stepping toward me. Get in my car. I didn't have much time to think. I immediately turned left and sprinted into the park. There were only four entrances, all of which a car could not enter. It was a traditional Japanese-style garden with tall bamboo trees and a pond of koi surrounding a gazebo in the middle. The man was in a no-parking zone, so he wouldn't leave his car alone. I heard him curse under his breath and jump back into the car. I pulled out my phone immediately calling Kosuke. Just my luck, though. He didn't answer. I tried the rest of the group. No one answered. I looked at the next exit just in time to see his car crawl by slowly, his head sticking out the window searching for me as I hid behind a grove of bamboo. Trembling in fear, I tried again and again with no success to reach the guys. I looked repeatedly at my four exits, always seeing him crawling by. He was circling the park, waiting for me to walk out so he could talk to me again, though I had the feeling talking wasn't really what he wanted to do. Just as I was about to cry, my phone lit up dimly with a phone call from Kosuke. What's the problem? He said jokingly. The other guys in the background were still joking around. In a rush of breath, I explained to him my current predicament. Though he didn't say a word the entire time, I could practically hear the smile leave his face. The rest of the group had quieted too, and I heard one say, What's going on? Is she okay? He told me to stay where I was and that he was on his way. But I was already 20 minutes away and I wasn't sure that I had 20 minutes before the guy parked his car and came into the park to look for me. I looked behind me, again just in time to see him drive by that exit, looking through. That's it. I'm cold, I'm tired, I'm scared. I want to go home. I'm going to run after he passes the next exit and turns the corner, I explain. No, he said, wait for me. I can run there. I'll be there soon. But Kosuke wasn't a runner. I didn't think he'd be there any faster than I could. He started to say something more, but the phone suddenly went dark. Dead battery. No turning back now. I waited a few seconds, and there he was right on schedule. He crawled by the exit, then stopped. My heart was pounding so hard. I was sure he could hear it, but he looked hard and slowly around. The sun was starting to come up now, and he had a better view. It really was now or never. He slowly moved forward. I crept out of my hiding spot and moved back towards the exit. I poked my head out and saw him turn the corner. I sprinted toward my house and didn't look back. I was too scared to. I don't know if he saw me, and I was too fast to follow or what, but I didn't see him ever again. I immediately put my phone on the charger and called the guys back to let them know I was okay, but Kosuke 
never let me walk home alone in the dark again. It was in the fall of 2007 and I was 15, living in New York. I was a competitive athlete in high school, the type who got up before school for workouts and trained for long hours after. With recruiting season a year away, I was under tremendous pressure to perform in my sport as well as in the classroom. I was struggling to keep up in calculus at the time, so my mom suggested that I get a tutor. She made an appointment with a teacher friend of hers who really knew his stuff. I'd been going to him regularly, probably three times a week for a month before I met Alex. Alex had the tutoring session after mine, and we'd cross paths every week. It had never been more than a glance and a smile, as I was incredibly shy and terrified of boys. He was tall and blonde with piercing blue eyes, so naturally, I thought he was cute. One day, my tutor had to change his schedule and decided to book us together, as we were learning the same topics in calculus. I was shocked and delighted when Alex started chatting with me afterwards and asked for my phone number. I had never had a boy pay attention to me in that way, and I was flattered that someone that cute wanted my number. Eventually, Alex and I began dating. Alex went to a Catholic school in another town, but because he lived in the same town as I did, he took the bus every morning from my school to his. This gave us most mornings together and he was able to meet my friends. I was a little taken back when they didn't like him like I did. They mentioned him being weird and got super defensive but let it go. I realized that I'd been spending less time with them than I normally did and assumed that they were jealous that I had a boyfriend. As time went on, things got more serious. We started experimenting sexually, and eventually I lost my virginity to him in the back of his Ford Escape. That's when things began to change. While Alex and I always talked regularly, he started getting over the top about staying in contact with me. He would make me stay on the phone with him all hours of the night, until eventually my mom started taking my phone before I went to sleep. This relationship also started taking a toll on my athletic career. I was too tired to spend my extra time training and started skipping my practices to see him, driving 30 minutes each way to his school. Eventually, my friends sat me down and told me how unhealthy this relationship had become. I had isolated myself from them, and my entire free time was spent with him. At this point, I wanted so badly to end the relationship I had fallen out of love with Alex, and college applications were approaching. I had been scouted by no less than 10 colleges, and my plan was to attend Brown, my dream school. Alex's obsession with our relationship had taken a huge toll on his grades, and Brown wasn't going to be an option for him. I remember when I told him that that was where I was planning on going, and he freaked out, saying he would never get in there and begging me not to go. At the time, I was also recruited by the University of Illinois. Alex applied there in hopes that I would ditch Brown to go to Illinois with him. That was the final straw for me. I ended things for good with Alex, assuming that that would be it. 
Because Alex would take the bus with me from school to his every morning, I still had to see him. I remember walking into school past him and his classmates who took the bus with him, and some of his guy friends yelled, slut and whore, at me. Apparently, he had spread a rumor that I had cheated on him with a bunch of guys at school and ended it with him. I ignored it until I started getting messages on Facebook from random people at his school. I spent months getting nasty messages from guys accusing me of having STDs and telling me I was going to get gangbanged by his friends. Eventually, I had to delete my Facebook because it wouldn't stop. I think deleting my Facebook was what set off the stalker tendencies for Alex. He wasn't able to see my face online, so he started calling nonstop and sending desperate aim messages telling me he loved me. While this was going on, I was the favorite to win a high school championship in my sport. I'd gone undefeated all season. Alex ended up showing up while I was competing for the championship, and I saw him there. It shook me so badly, I ended up losing the title. I was furious and heartbroken. I ended up picking up his phone call that came that night and screamed at him, telling him to never contact me again. That's when the threats began. I got a call a few nights later from Alex after he texted me. He had something important to tell me. Stupidly, I answered. He began to tell me how he was going to kill me. He was going to show up at my house when my parents were at work, with rope and a knife, and make me suffer like I'd done to him. I started to cry, and he eventually went on to say he was going to get me before I went into school because he knew exactly where I parked every morning, and my parents were never going to find me. At this point, I had decided to record what was being said and had it taped on my phone. I hung up once I felt he had said enough. The next morning, I went into school extra early, much earlier than I figured he'd be there. I showed my advisor the recording, who then called my mom, I remember feeling a deep-rooted shame as my mom listened to the recording, like I had done something to bring this on myself. My advisor was so alarmed by the recording, he advised me to go to the police. This day feels surreal to me. My mom and I sat at the police station all day, explaining the story about my relationship with Alex and how it got to this point. The police then drove to his high school and arrested him while he was in class. The topper on the day, though, was when I went out to bring food back to the police station for my mom and I, and I pulled into the station at the same time as the car holding Alex did. I saw him in cuffs, and he indeed looked like he wanted to kill me. Post-arrest, I got a restraining order against Alex, and he was sent to a mental institution for a short while. He ended up breaking the RO on more than one occasion. I contacted the police, but they didn't think it was cause to do anything. I think it's important to note that Alex's family was wealthy and had a name in the area, so it wouldn't have surprised me if that's why they brushed it under the rug. I ended up attending Brown and had to inform them of the RO and let them know that Alex should not be allowed on campus. 
It's been over 10 years since this happened, and I still continue to receive friend requests and phone calls from him on occasion. I recently moved across the country from where this occurred. I finally feel safe now that I'm far from where he lives, but anytime I get a blocked call or a text from a number I don't know, a thought goes through my head that that's him. It's safe to say that this experience has completely changed who I let into my life and who I choose to date. Alex, let's not meet again. This all literally just happened within the last hour. I got out of work at 6.30pm and went to McDonald's to get an iced coffee. I pull up to the drive-thru and there's a red truck in front of me with a cap on the bed. It's super wide so I can't see their mirrors and thus can't get a good glimpse of who's inside. I'm minding my own business listening to Unsolved Mysteries on YouTube when I see that the red truck has pulled up to the second pickup window. You know, there's the window where you pay, and then there's the windows where you pick up the food. I didn't think anything of it, and just assumed they had a big order, and the McDonald's employee asked them to pull up, so I could get my iced coffee. I look up to see the truck's reverse lights come on. Okay, they must have pulled up a little too far, and are just backing up. No big deal. They keep backing up, without signaling to me that they were backing up. I slowly back up, too. Luckily, no one is behind me. They keep backing up and backing up until they are finally parked at the first pickup window now. The McDonald's employee looks out the window at me, shrugs, and gives me a look like, I don't know why they did that. A few minutes go by. At this point, I'm just thinking about how strange and not part of common etiquette it was to back up without signaling to anyone they needed to do so. They could have easily hit me had I not been looking straight ahead, curious as to what they were doing. Now five minutes at least goes by. No one is being given any food. I just want my iced coffee, so I'm kind of annoyed that they backed up, thinking maybe they were told to go to the second window since I only needed the coffee, but they suddenly felt like refusing to do so. McDonald's would get them their food faster, and thus they backed up to the first window. I don't know. Anyway, I continue to sit there and wait for my food when I see the passenger door to the truck open. Out comes an older man, maybe 65 or 70 years old, probably. He was wearing light khaki-colored overalls and a dirty white t-shirt. He starts walking slowly over to my car. I'm thinking maybe he's going to apologize to me for not signaling that they needed to back up. He gets to my passenger door window, turns so he's facing the window head on, and just stares at me. I'm waiting for him to signal to put my window down, thinking he had something to say. He doesn't do anything. He just stands there and stares. He starts to lift his hand towards the handle. I quickly lock the door. He scowls and walks back to the truck gets back in the passenger side. They immediately drive away the second the door closes. They didn't get any food. 
They didn't get anything. They just left. I pull up to the drive-thru to finally get my iced coffee. It's been well over ten minutes at this point, and I head home. At this point, I have more questions than answers. Why did they back up without signaling? Why did they need to back up at all? Why did he get out of his truck? Why was he about to open my door? Why didn't he say anything? Why didn't they get their food or drinks? It might not be the creepiest thing to happen, but the whole ordeal made me anxious that I was shaking the whole ride home. I'm not the best at confrontation, clearly. I just wish I had some insight or understanding to exactly what happened here. with my fiancé and my youngest brother who works in law enforcement. This will be semi-relevant to the story. We live in a smallish town outside Las Vegas. We don't have much crime for being close to Vegas, but we do have some, and we have no shortage of tweakers and a growing population of homeless folk. Last summer, I was between jobs and spent a good deal of time at the public library, or my father's business office, using the free Wi-Fi to browse jobs. It was around four in the afternoon when I returned home. We have a dog named Suki. She's a bull terrier cattle dog mix. She's very wary of strangers and a literal terrorist shit, so it makes her a perfect watchdog. Anyway, it's hot as I live in Satan's butthole, and I'm sweating profusely, So I run a tepid bath, turn on my Spotify, grab a magazine, and lock myself in the bathroom. Doggo is outside the bathroom door, whining because the big idiot hates water, but likes dropping her toys in the water. Anyway, I'm mid-bath, and I hear my dog losing her shit. Then I hear her run upstairs, and I hear someone go, Oh shit. I freeze. I'm naked as a jaybird. I have no weapons. My brother's lockbox with his Glock is upstairs, and my dog is upstairs fighting off an intruder. I grab my phone as I hear the intruder yelling at my dog, who is, I'm sure, tearing into him. I dial 911 and scream, I'm calling the cops! Cue him cursing, and I'm sure to pry 55 pounds of crazy fucking dog off of him. Somehow he gets away and runs out the back door. My dog tears after him, and as I talk to the dispatcher, I throw on some clothes and then run upstairs. My dog comes back inside, prouder than shit, strutting around. I lock her in my brother's bedroom as the cops have shown up and I don't need her biting one of them. Apparently my neighbor heard the barking and caught the guy. He's 125 pounds soaking wet, no shirt, covered in dog bites and meth scars. He found our fake rock with the key and let himself inside. He was taken off, but the cops told me not to use a fake rock. No shit, I figured that one out. 
Dog was fed a delicious steak, and I spent the next few weeks terrified some tweakers were going to break back in. We keep two guns locked up now. One upstairs and one downstairs. I just came back from dinner with my mom, and we talked about something that happened literally 20 years ago. And while we did, I thought it'd be a good story to share here. Now, before I can jump in, I need to sketch the surroundings a bit. At that time, my mom was 43 and I was 18. Also, our relationship wasn't very good. Admittedly, that was pretty much all my fault. I was a rebellious teenager then, and important for the story, I was caught up in the metal scene, among other things, being a vocalist of a black metal band. You know those inhuman screeches you hear? It's actually a trick. Next to that, I had picked up a liking for weed. My mom stood out less in attire and manners. Although, yes, that is important too. She likes the color blue and had long blonde hair. Behind our house stood a house owned by, and I'm Belgian, my terms might be a little off by this, social services. An organization that provided sheltered living. So there lived three men, Abe, Bart, and Carl. Abe and Bart were obviously in need of help, but completely harmless. Carl. Carl was, even in that company, special. Not on first sight. He was a rather diminutive guy who dressed well. But if people are really detached from reality, you have to look in their eyes to really know. Now, Carl might have been heavily medicated. He was batshit crazy. I don't know what the problem really was. I'm not a psychiatrist. But in a nutshell, he suffered religious delusions and was completely convinced some other people were angels, demons, and characters from the Bible. I didn't know that, but in hindsight, let me give you a rundown how I looked when I returned home from a show. Long hair, a beard, rather muscular build, a black frock like monks wear, studded leather belt, arm bracelets, and a big pentagram around my neck. And... I went full out corpse paint. So in short, after seeing me walk around like that a few times and hearing the frequent arguments my mom and I had, Carl became convinced that I was literally a demon. And here comes the catch. My mom was the Virgin Mary. Blue clothes, long blonde hair, remember? Whom I wanted to abduct into hell. But he had his medication and he wasn't a danger to anybody. Until on a hot summer day, I got a visit from the police because I had gotten in a fight. So what did my mom do? She invited the cops to sit in the yard while they talked to me. To Carl, that was somehow the straw that broke the camel's back. The cops leave. I succeed in convincing them. I just happen to be near the fight. And my mom and I start arguing again. At the same moment, Carl starts skipping his medication. A week later, I have a show in a neighboring city, so around 3 a.m., I return. Because I wasn't that stupid, I didn't drink or smoke before getting into my car, but I was planning on doing that afterwards. In the car were two of my bandmates, 
Andres, and Quentin. I go inside, and my mom is fast asleep, so I get a few beers while they sit in the garden. Smoking had to happen outside, and it's pretty hot anyway. We sit, chat, smoke, drink, all is great. Until Carl decides to act. What the fuck? said Andres. He pointed at the hedge at the end of our garden. All three of us, intoxicated by then, watched Carl dressed in a white gown with an aluminum circle on his head wrestle himself through the hedge. What do you think you're doing? I said. Be gone, forces of evil, he shouted, waving at us with a rather large cross, like as long as my arm. At that moment, I admit we didn't know what to do. If you think about it, he probably took that as a sign his cross worked. So he runs to my open back door, my clue to run behind him, screaming at him to stop. He enters my house, shrieking that he's coming to save the Virgin Mary. Now it gets weird. My mom wakes up from all the shouting. She wore white PJs and had her hair loose. Carl must have thought she descended from heaven. So he bolts up the stairs, falls to his knees, and starts praying. The three demons behind him are, strangely enough, not repelled. I grab him by his scrawny neck, totally ready to go medieval on him. I mean, we had our problems, sure, but this is my mom we're talking about. He jumps up, wrestles himself free, and manages to hit Quentin in the head with the cross. Andres and I back up, look at each other, and nod. Carl is going down. Stop, says my mom, as loud as she can. She walks up to Carl, takes his hand, and says, I think you're seeing this wrong. He looks up to her and starts crying. I mean, ugly bawling. He tells her he wants to protect her from, and points at us. Mom goes, I know, I know, but that really isn't necessary. I whisper to Andres to call the cops downstairs and stay there. Look, he's just a kid that likes to dress himself up. I don't really like it either, but it's a game. She motions at me, and I lose the frock, the belt, and all that stuff. Underneath, that stuff was heavy, and it got hot. I'm only wearing boxers. I wish I had a picture. Carl is still on his knees crying. My mom is standing before him smiling. Quentin, in full garb, is sitting against the wall holding his head and I'm standing in my boxers. I mean, you don't have to be crazy to get confused by that. Carl takes a deep breath. But you're the Virgin Mary, he asks. I'm just a nice lady, she says, and... They're my son and his friends, and you're Carl. It's all okay. He looks at me, then at my mom, stands up, and grabs his cross. He looks at it, and then says, in an almost childish voice, Didn't I tell you? After which, he makes his way downstairs, through the garden, through the hedge, 
and back to his own place. Somewhat later, the cops show up. We explain everything, and the next day, Carl moved out. That was the story about the one man I don't want to meet again, and how I learned that my mom is, underneath her appearance, brave and smart as fuck. To conclude, two days later, his social worker paid us a visit telling us what happened in Carl's mind leading up to that night, repeating over and over about how happy they were we were unharmed. I, by then my usual bragging teenage self, said, I would have dealt with him. The social worker shakes his head. Apparently, Carl told him he didn't only have a cross. He also had a large kitchen knife under his gown. About seven years ago, when I was 17, my parents went out of town for a weekend and left me at home. This was a pretty common occurrence. My parents trusted me. I would usually spend these weekends away staying with friends or family, as my parents' house is a bit creepy to be alone in, even during the day. We live in a small rural town where everyone knows each other, and generally, it's pretty quiet and safe. That Saturday, I was supposed to stay with the friend, but her parents decided at the last minute not to let me stay. It wasn't a big deal that I had to leave. I was somewhat prepared to have to go home because her parents got weird about company sometimes. I left her house, which is about 15 minutes from my parents' house, around 9.30 or 9.45. While I was on my way home, I got a weird feeling that I can't really explain. I just knew that I didn't want to stay at my parents alone. I called my brother and asked if I could stay with him. At the time, he was living with a woman who had a small child. He told me it would be quieter and easier for him to come stay with me, since his dog would bark if I tried to come into the house. He said he would be at our parents in 20 minutes. Side note, that's relevant later. My brother is a relatively scary-looking guy. He's about six foot three, two hundred pounds, very muscular, and covered in tattoos. After hanging up, I decided to stop at the gas station and grab a snack before going home, so that my brother would be there when I got there. I pulled into the gas station. There were only a few cars in the parking lot, which is typical because this is a small town in the rural south where everything pretty much stops after eight p.m. I parked and walked up to the door. There was a man standing outside the door smoking. He opened the door for me without saying anything. This is normal southern hospitality, especially since I'm a female. I smiled and thanked him. Inside, there was another man standing by the door. I noticed him staring at me as soon as I came in. He gave me that gross up-and-down look and said something to the effect of, Hey, sexy, what are you doing alone? Creepy as fuck. I just ignored him and walked towards the back of the store. He yelled after me and called me a bitch. I still ignored him. I figured he was drunk or high or just an asshole. Most people around here talk big game but rarely back it up. I wasn't scared, just annoyed. I got my snacks and paid at the counter. When I walked back up to the door, both of the men were gone. 
I was happy not to have to deal with any more catcalling. I began to walk across the lot toward my car, which was probably a hundred feet away from the door. As I was walking, I looked down at my phone to see if enough time had passed for my brother to be at my parents. When I looked up, the asshole who had hit on me was standing at the pumps, staring. I looked at him for a second and continued walking. Hey, you know you're supposed to answer a man when he speaks to you, he said. I remember saying something snarky back to him and getting in my car. He looked pissed at my sarcasm. I locked my doors as soon as I was in my car, started it, and was thinking of nothing but getting home to eat my snacks and hang out with my brother. I put my car in gear and realized the man had disappeared. I looked around before pulling out of my parking spot, only to realize that both men were sitting in a car facing mine across the lot. They were both staring at me and talking, occasionally even pointing toward me. I just stared at them, defiant and pissed. I didn't want them to think that they scared me at all. While we were sitting having our staring contest, the man who had opened the door for me smiled and gave me the finger-across-the-throat gesture, as in you're dead. I rolled my eyes and pulled out of the gas station annoyed. To my dismay, they pulled out behind me. I hadn't been scared up until this point because, as I said, most people here are a lot of talk with no follow-through. Instead of going home, I took a few back roads that connect in a sort of circle to see if they were really following me, which, of course, they were. When they realized I was testing them, they drove up really close to me and started laying on the horn. I couldn't see their headlights. They were so close. I called my brother and told him what was going on. He told me to come home, and he would handle it. I started driving home. The two assholes were still on my ass, blowing the horn. Even with my detours, I was only three to four minutes from my parents' house. I slowed down to pull in the driveway and was immediately relieved. At the end of my driveway, my brother was standing shirtless with his shoulders back, hands crossed in front of his stomach, holding a pistol and his intimidating pit bull sitting by his side. I drove around him into the yard. The two guys actually started to pull in behind me until they saw my brother. Then they hightailed it out of there. I have no idea what they would have done if I had stopped somewhere alone or kept driving. I always think fondly of that image of him standing there like a badass ready to protect me. I'm thankful he was there. This all happened last night. So my wife and I went to a movie. It was called Skyscraper. It was okay. We get home around 9 p.m. We live in a new development. It's middle class to upper middle class. It's nice, and it's a safe area. We don't have a mailbox in front of our house. It's one of those neighborhoods where the mailboxes are all together at the end of our street. 
so we don't always check it, but I knew I was getting a package from Amazon, so we went by. There was the package, and also a letter with a typed envelope, made out to my name, but with a return address and no name. But it was from the street behind us. We don't know anyone here that well, so I opened it up as we drove down the street. What I read shocked me. It said, We are watching you, Mr. Sex Pervert, with a picture of two creepy eyes. I was floored. So when we got home, my wife was upset. I'm pissed off and confused. And to be clear, I'm truly not a pervert, as far as I know. I'm faithfully married to my wife. We have no weird fetishes. I've never been accused of anything perverted in my life. Not by anyone, nor have I done anything that comes to mind. If anything, my wife had complained about me being too bland. Anyways, by my wife's urging, I call the sheriff's department. They agree it's creepy and that they will send someone out, but can't promise how long it will be. Then things start to get even weirder. We've been home about five minutes total, and our car alarm starts going off. It's happened before. I occasionally, accidentally, hit the panic button in my pocket, but I'm sitting inside by the window, hitting the stop button, and it won't turn off. I admittedly get frustrated. I'm already in a bad mood. I throw it down and it breaks, but my wife turns it off with hers. So we decide to take a drive and see what house this letter came from behind us before the sheriff shows up. Turns out, that house number doesn't exist. For some reason, they skipped it when numbering the street, but if it had existed, it would be directly behind us. When we pull back up to our house, the next-door neighbors, the ones across the street, are both outside talking. We go to see what's going on. Apparently, when our car alarm was going off, so was theirs. They parked in the street between our two houses. I hadn't heard theirs with mine going off as well, but they did. And the neighbor across the street heard two car alarms going off and came out to look. Right in front of his house was a guy sitting in a black car with the lights off, whom, once he came out, took off down the road quickly. He chased it a little by foot, trying to get the license plate, but it was too dark, and they took off. So, he also calls the sheriff. About five minutes later, two pull up coincidentally about the same time, the one dispatched for my call and the one for his. They have no idea what to think, ask if I have any enemies, bad exes, family problems, if I've ever been accused of anything, if I can think of anyone, but the truthful answer to all of those is no. But they take a report, and they take the letter as evidence. They gave me a card if anything else happens. So I barely slept last night. I'm just dumbstruck and confused. I don't know any of my neighbors well, except the next doors, and not many people even know my address. Since they used a return address of the street behind us as an address that doesn't exist, I feel like they know my area. My name and address are both on our HOA website, which could be where they got the information. But I've truly done nothing. My imagination is running wild, and I'm out of ideas. Was the car a coincidence? Is this person insane? 
My wife is scared, but trusts me. Any ideas on what to do next or why someone would be doing this is very much appreciated. Let's not meet. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this Lost Stories episode of Let's Not Meet, a true horror podcast. And thanks to all of the wonderful people that came out to the shows in Seattle and Portland. I had the time of my life. Things went so well. I'm already in talks with some places about booking shows in other cities throughout the states. I'm really excited to make my way around the U.S. and say hi to everyone, tell you some spooky stories in person. On this Lost Stories episode, you've heard... I almost had to shoot someone on my first Tinder date by Titan, 1846. Let's Go Home Together by Tanny Darling. Ten Years a Stalker by Aria Sage XX. Drive Through Story by Ashley Libby. Someone is in My House by Mrs. Reese, 818. How I Learned That My Mom is Smart and Brave by Harold. Gas Station Encounter by Eh, Maybe Not. And finally, an anonymous letter by ASU2009. All the stories you've heard this week were narrated and produced with the permission of their respective authors. Let's Not Meet, a true horror podcast, is not associated with Reddit or any other message boards online. As always, send your stories over to letsnotmeetstories at gmail.com if you want to hear them on the show. And don't forget to check out the new episodes of my other podcasts, Odd Trails, and the Old Time Radio Cast at crypticcountypodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to get access to the ad-free version of this week's episode and a bunch of bonus content, we're talking almost 100 hours of stories, head over to patreon.com forward slash let's not meet podcast to sign up today. I'll see you all next week for a brand new episode of Let's Not Meet. Stay safe.